When the whole family comes together to watch the game, nobody wants to miss a second of the action to run to the grocery store. With Instacart, you can get all your weekly groceries in as fast as an hour. Less time shopping means more game time. Let's go. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. Mike's on. He's ready to go. On the fan. New York Sports Radio. Mike's on. Mike's on. He'll get you the sports any way that he can. It's Mike Francis on. All right, we come to you on this Tuesday evening, uh, brought to you, of course, by Casamigos Tequila, brought to you by those who drink it on this second day of uh, June. Good evening, everybody. Take you right up until 7 o'clock. We click another day off without a lot of news except another passing, and uh, as I have said, over the last couple of months, it seems like we get somebody notable almost every day. Unfortunately, we have another one this evening. And one that uh, I remember very well and who really burst on the scene with an incredible impact. But we'll get to that in a minute. Where we start is where we seem to be every day. You know, when the pandemic broke out, they sent us home to watch and wait. We've spent months watching and waiting, waiting for a plan, waiting for some news to return, waiting for some good news in some way that has yet to come. All that's happened is something else knocked it off the uh, front page, knocked it off the screen, knocked it out of our consciousness for a couple of days. And now we're back again to sitting at home and watching and waiting to see when our cities and our communities will be back to a sense of safety and normalcy, where they will get these cities back under control, because clearly they're not not under control right now. And it isn't any one group you can point your finger at when you see Looting, it doesn't mean the people who are trying to protest in earnest are out there looting. Many of them, most of them are not. Almost all of them are not. I can't say every one of them isn't, but I should think most of them are not. The point is, though, that what has happened is it has created another crisis on top of a crisis we already had. It's put more strain on local government again and again put an incredible strain on top of strain on local businessmen and local merchants 
you've seen people in the restaurant business, in the bar business, uh, in the hotel business, in all different walks of life who were getting ready to open now say they won't open. Have closed restaurants, have closed bars, have closed stores, uh, have had stores destroyed. So as this second set of incidents happens and unfolds in front of us as we watch these protests and watch the same, you know, they start with a protest and then sometime before the evening's out there is a flurry of lawlessness with confrontations between police and National Guard and protesters or those that are acting as protesters or masquerading as protesters and then obviously those who are there to see what they can take out of a storefront, which we know is going on. I mean, we can see it before our eyes going on. And that becomes a very, very big part of this. And it has touched not just the big cities, it's touched the communities. You can drive around Long Island and see them boarding up stores the last couple of days, see them boarding up shopping centers the last couple of days. Places where there was not, were not boarded up. And in the city I'd been, down in Soho near the fan, I'd seen things boarded up from the day they had the pause. Some of the stores boarded up immediately. Others did not. Some of those were broken into the last couple of days. Even very close to home to, to FAN. And we've seen, you know, that whole thing change in the last couple of days as we've watched, as I watched yesterday, last night even, I watched as at nine, ten o'clock last night, they were boarding up stores on Long Island. I saw them doing it. So this has obviously hit not just the major cities, it's hit a lot of communities. It's hit, it's hit a lot of places in the last couple of days. On top of everything else. So on top of the strain that was already there as we tried to start to make the way back, we now have had this second wave. Reminds me very much, and I know you've heard these analogies and comparisons to the 60s because there was more than one thing going on then. There was obviously the idea of racial inequality and what was going on in our cities. And then there was the Vietnam War and what that was causing and the divide that was causing. So there was more than one thing, just like there's been more than one thing here. So again, for most of us, it becomes, again, go to the one place you go now, more than anything else for news, which is your television, in this era of 24-hour news, and watch this unfold night after night, whether it was finding out the latest numbers as the virus continued to spread across the country and how bad it was, especially as it got to be so critical in our neck of the woods, and then watching the last couple of nights as we've seen what has gone on in New York City, 
or Washington, D.C., or Santa Monica, or Louisville, or Minnesota, or et cetera, et cetera, and on and on across the entire country. Really, very, very few places have been completely unscathed. You see large crowds today. What's going to be the result of the evening? We don't know. As they face curfews and differing curfews in these different uh, cities. I'm sure they'll have the timetables up for the curfews tonight as that unfolds. And again, in this era of completely polarized news coverage where one slant is coming this way and they're showing you one thing and the other slant is coming the other way and they're showing you the other part. We're getting that again as we continue to get that. So we wind up in the same place. We wind up incredibly polarized, incredibly divided and in a very uh, tense place just wishing that it would all go away and waiting for it to end. Waiting for things to get back to some sense of normalcy. The most amazing thing to me is that it is actually, that this story has actually knocked the pandemic as far off the screen and as far off the uh, front pages as, I, as it has. It surprised me. It, has, it actually has to a larger extent than I thought it would. But it's been that immediate and it has hit home, there's no question, especially in the last 48 hours. With obviously not a resolution yet, but one to come. And again, like I said yesterday, if you're old enough as I, you know, or if you are in your 60s or in your 70s or in your 80s or older, you've seen this before and you've seen it worse. So you know we'll get through it because you've seen it worse, much worse. The 60s were were much, much worse than what we've seen the last couple of nights. Not that this is pleasant. It's not. Not that this is in any way constructive. It's not. But this is not anywhere near as uh, violent or destructive as we saw back in the 60s. And hopefully it goes away uh, and it's something we at least gain some kind of resolution out of. But again, for most of us, it's more waiting and watching. Um, as I said, another passing. Wes Unseld. I remember Wes Unseld in college. I remember him at Louisville. I remember him burst on the scene into the NBA with the Bullets and do something that only the legendary Will Chamberlain had ever done, and that is win the MVP as a rookie. The thing that comes to mind, two things probably came to mind. The blocky shoulders and the afro, and the fact that he threw the greatest outlet pass of anybody who's ever lived. No one threw an outlet pass on a fast break as well as Wes Unseld. The ball was gone before he the ball was gone before his feet ever hit the ground. And it was out there and it was on its way to a to a lead guard and away they went. And I loved, you know, 
there were a lot of great matchups with those legendary Nick teams. But the one I've mentioned through the years that I liked, and I liked all of them. I liked them when they played the Bulls. I liked them when they played, obviously, the great Celtic teams. I liked them, but I loved them when they played the Bullets because there was such a perfect matchup there. With the backup, with, with, with obviously having unselled Gus Johnson, who matched up with, you know, unselled matched up with Reed, and Gus Johnson matched up with Dave DeBusher. Jack Marin and Bill Bradley drove each other nuts at the small forward position, running off screens and running back and forth and never, ever stopping, always in perpetual motion on both ends of the floor. Early on, it was Kevin Lockery, if you remember. Some of you might remember Kevin Lockery as a coach. Kevin Lockery was a good basketball player. Shared a backcourt with the one and only legendary Earl Monroe. And this was the Earl Monroe of the bullet days, not the Earl Monroe of the, of the Knicks days, who subjugated his game and his ego to come to New York. The Earl Monroe of bullet days. 26, 27 points a game, a whirling dervish with the ball back and forth, an unstoppable, you know, unstoppable player in a very, very different style than anybody else played. It's just an incredible player to watch, exciting player to watch. And off that bench, you had guys like Ellis and Scott, you know. uh, That was a... Like, Gus Johnson was a tremendous player. You tell people, they don't realize Gus Johnson was a wonderful talent. You know, uh, unselled would average. You know, he didn't score a lot of points. I mean, he scored 12 points, 13 points, 10 points, but he'd get a lot of rebounds. And he would lead that fast break, play good defense, six foot seven, 260 pounds, built like a cement block, small but able to play bigger players, always having to match up with bigger players. And breaking in with that classic team with the Bullets, and then later on, having spent his whole, year, his whole career with the Bullets, and then later on becoming a coach and a general manager, but winning a championship with the Big E, with Elvin Hayes, with Bobby Dandridge, with Kevin Grevy and... Thomas Henderson, Charles Johnson, and Mitch Kupchak, and all the guys who were on that team that won the championship. That one championship that they won. As a matter of fact, he was the MVP in the finals, Wes was. Wes Unseld, was he on the level of a Russell or a Chamberlain or a Jabbar? No. No, those guys are, you know, top five t- players of all time. But he was a wonderful player, a unique player who brought a unique style to the game. And like we said, burst on the scene and made a difference. There are players who come in the game and make the game different as soon as they came in. You know, Wilt did when he first came. He knew Wilt, what he changed the game. Jabbar did when he came and he changed the game. Bill, uh, Larry Bird did when he first came. He changed the game. Bird and Magic both did. Bird especially coming to a bad team. And Unseld stepping in and having the kind of impact that he had. You know, 13 points, 18 rebounds, rookie year, winning the MVP as a rookie. 
that's an impressive feat. I think all the great players, LeBron, Michael, Bird, go down the line who have never done that. Even Bill Russell didn't do it. Wilt did it. Unsell did it. That's a special feat. So Wes Unsell gone today. And as I said, each day it seems like, and I guess when you do this as long as I've done it, you've been through generations. You've been been doing this 35 years now. And then the people you started with or you saw as a kid, a lot of them start to go now. And they had such a big impact on you. And the people who watch those games, who watch those bullet Nick games, are right now shaking their head saying, yeah, those were, un- boy, what I wouldn't give to see one of those tonight. What I wouldn't give to go to God tonight and see one of those games. Because those were great games. Because they, the matchups fit so perfectly. They were just, each guy had a counterpart. They were just so balanced and so evenly matched. And in the middle of it, and without question, their leader for the Bullets. The Bullets had more exciting players. They had better players. But their leader, from the day he got there, was unsold. That's just the impact he had. That's just the, the, just the presence. Just like, the, just like Willis... You know, DeBusha was the catalyst that changed things, but Willis was the foundation. He was the leader. Same thing with Unseld. Unseld was the leader. Hayes was incredibly talented, but always flighty. Monroe was the virtuoso, but that was his game. He was the scorer. But Unseld was the leader. Gus Johnson could soar to the sky and make amazing one-hand plays, jump over people. But Unseld was the leader. Had a great basketball life. When I came in today and I looked and I saw, and it said, Wes Unseld passed, I said, wow. I said, I have to spend a little time on that today because I just, when I think back to an era, I, I think of Wes Unseld. It brings me back to an era of great basketball. It really does. And he had a great basketball life. A couple time All America in college, stepping into the NBA and having the impact that he had, also being a general manager and a head coach as an African American. Major impact there, too. So a great basketball life, gone today at the age of 74. You know, as you watch what's gone on in this country uh, since mid-March, and I don't need to go through each day of what went on. We've all lived through it. But as you watch it, and then watch what we're watching right now, as I have the news on right now, and they're showing a street in L.A., uh, or at this moment, then they'll cut to a street in D.C., and we're watching uh, as there is great unrest and all this division over how to handle the protests. While this is going on, we watch the players and the owners in baseball 
completely oblivious to everything that is going on and thinking that, hey, you guys, let this go on while we sit over here and hammer each other and can't make a deal and divide up the 40 or 45 or 50 percent of the 10 billion dollars we're going to make this year so we're only going to make five when we lump in the playoff money and maybe whatever added playoff money there will be and whatever money we can scrap in from other sources whether it's signage or different things that come up this year or different things we put together uh, the players have talked about you know, whether it's home run derbies or some different events to kind of draw attractions or whatever they they decide, okay? These guys expect there will be no... Hey, if we decide to go our own ways, who cares? No one cares. No one will miss us. Yes, they will. They will not forgive you. They didn't forgive you last time. We saw this once before, not to this extent, but we watched, and I'm telling you, each day as we reported on it, all we heard was that they would not cancel the World Series. Baseball would not have the goal. Neither side would have the nerve to cancel the World Series, and they did. And they paid an unbelievable price, and they got lucky. And they actually had to sell their soul to get lucky because they allowed rampant steroid abuse during that era so that they could break these and set these crazy home run marks and bring people back into the into the seats and into the game with these home run chases and these you know incredible home run feats that's what they did they later paid for their largesse and their, you know, permissive attitude. They could have halted that. They didn't halt it because they didn't dare halt it while McGuire and Sosa, you know, captured the imagination of the public and brought the game back and actually healed the game. They got lucky they healed the game that time. They are playing with fire here. See, the problem with baseball is that they don't look at this as just one year. They look at it as setting them on either a road that one of them doesn't like for the future because there's so much contempt towards whatever their practice is in terms of dealing with each other financially every year. It almost makes sense this year. And listen, they've already shown you they could care less about anything. And the owners are basically saying, we don't want want to play this regular season. We just want to get our playoff money. That's what we want to do. We want to do as little as possible to get our playoff money. We'll play 20 games and we'll play the playoffs. Then we only have to pay you a couple of dimes. The players are like, no, no, no. We want to play a lot of games. Yeah, because they want to get prorated pay for as many games as they possibly can. That's what's going on here. The owners know now that they can't get the players off the prorated pay, which means the players are going to get their salaries based on 162 divided by whatever they make. They're not going to back off their salaries. So now you got the players wanting to play 120 games or 112 games. You got the owners wanting to play 40 or 50. I'm surprised they don't want to play 20. That's where we are. 
they would almost be better served to see if they could actually act like they didn't play this year and then play. Let me explain. If they don't play, everything is the same next year. The players are still under contracts, have the same year, number of years left on their contracts. Their contracts are told. They have the same number of years left. They own the same number of years. They get the same number of years. They're, they are belong to that team. Players have the same amount of service time. They didn't play anymore. They didn't gain any service time. So they have the same amount of service time. They're in the same positions they were two years ago. So how about coming to an agreement where you act like financially and in terms of everything dealing with the sport economically, act like you didn't play this year. Freeze the books. Freeze everything like you didn't play. And then put what you feel are your recommendations for the revenue, how the revenue should be divided up. Make your best presentation and go to binding arbitration. The arbiter has no... He has nothing to say about the future of baseball. He has nothing to say about anything going forward. He has nothing to say about what happens in collective bargaining. He has nothing to say about anything except one thing, dividing up this year's revenue. There's no impact on future. The game picks up as if it didn't play this year. But the revenue that is made this year has to be spent the players get paid for performing whatever number they perform to. They, and the owners get to deal with the revenue that is there for this year. So there's no sport this year from that standpoint. Service time stays the same. Contractual agreements stay the same. The business of baseball where it is will be picked up next year. But this year... The owners say, here is how much money we expect to make. Here is what our network TV deal is for the regular season. Here's how many games we, if we play, here's what the games we agree on. Here's what that will be. Here's what the postseason will bring us in terms of economics, in terms of the money that's going to be shared. This is the portion of the money that is ours, but we're willing to give some part of it to the players. The players say, here is how we want to be paid so that we are not in any way beholding to a system or anything else. There's no system. You pick up next year just like you started this year from the beginning. And you just take whatever the revenue is, whatever the dollar number is. If it was $10 billion in a normal year and it's $4.4 billion this year, you as owners put forth how many games you're going to play? You want to play? What system you want to play? And what you want to pay the players? And the players put forth their plan. Now they agree upon health issues. They agree upon different things. But when it comes to payment, they go to binding arbitration. 
And I let the arbitration board decide binding, which means whatever it is, it is. They agree with the players, fine. They agree with the owners, fine. They come up with something that's in between, fine. You both agree to it, and then you can play baseball this year. And you do not in any way touch the game for the future. None of it impacts it. Now, can you say, well, we can't do that. They can hold a grudge. They can always hold a grudge. They already hold a grudge. They're going to hold a grudge anyway. So nothing's going to change. They came into this year holding a grudge. Most players and most union people think that baseball's been manipulating them since 2016. So trying to get the sport younger, trying to do this, trying to you know, do So all the different things. So the bottom line is you freeze the game like no one played this year, like you're picking it up next year. Where the game would be if you didn't play. And then you agree on how many games you're going to play in the regular season. You've already agreed on a postseason plan from what I understand. You've got to agree on a regular season amount of games, and you have to agree on how you're going to pay the players and how, how much money they're going to get and how it's going to be scaled and everything. So that has to be agreed upon. And if you can figure out a way to do that, you can put forth a plan. You put forth a plan. You put forth a plan and let them pick a plan. That way you can play baseball this year. And you do not in any way touch the game because you left the game status quo. This is only a one-time deal. This is only for the special season that this year is. And you pick up next winter just like if you hadn't played a game this year, which right now is a distinct possibility. Now, I don't think either side has the nerve or would let go enough of their control to agree to binding arbitration. But that would be a fair way for them to have baseball this year. Don't expect it to happen. Instead, you have the utter ridiculous in some plans of baseball offering 40 40 games, some 50, a couple 60, some 40 game regulars. I mean, come on. It's ludicrous. Why not just play an expanded playoff performance, you know, open, an open tournament, a double elimination open tournament over a period of time? If you're going to do that, if, why not just do that if you're going to play 40 games? No, because they have to do something for their regular season baseball money. Which, again, remember, in some cities it's much larger than it is in other cities. Some people have no regular money to come back to. That's the inequity of baseball, and it's more pronounced in years like this. Now, let me get you the Mantle and Bernie Williams stats as I do each day. Here's Bernie from 6-2-96. Bernie was off to a good start in 96. He went 3-for-5 with three RBIs. He was hitting 344 with a 474 on base percentage. Superb numbers for Bernie. Eight homers and 34 RBIs. Mickey, it was 1958. We haven't done that of 58 for Mantle. And he was off to a very slow start in 58. 
Yankees were playing well. Matter of fact, this was one of those typical games that you heard about through the years. Whitey pitched, Mickey homered. Whitey pitched, Mickey homered. Mickey hit his fifth home run, just his fifth, 15 RBIs. Very slow start for Mickey. Batting just 290 at this point. As the Yanks went to 28 and 10 and bested the White Sox 3 0 behind Ford, Ford's sixth win. Uh, and Mickey homered, which there was always this idea that when Whitey pitched, Mickey homered. Whitey pitched, Mickey homered, Yankees won. That was always the scenario. Back after this. All right, we're back. Remember, Belmont opens tomorrow, so you have uh, no fans, but you do have racing, and you can wager on it. And the ways you can always wager on it, you have Naira accounts. You can wager on different entities, different you know racing entities you can uh, wager on. Or you could just, like I said, open up a uh, Naira account, wager on your phone. Uh, but racing returns to uh, beautiful Belmont Park tomorrow. Uh, we've missed that this spring. Uh, we don't have an official word yet that uh, Saratoga will race, but I do believe it will. No fans, uh, no sales this year there, and no fans this year. Uh, But you can at least tomorrow if it gives you something to do. And I tell you, if you – I don't ever try to tell somebody to start gambling because, you know, a lot of people frown on that. You know, there's people who can't control it. Uh, But, you know, handicapping is a fascinating mental exercise if you like doing it. It really is. It's not like any, it's just, it's, it's like doing a puzzle or anything else. Uh, and it's exciting. And it's, if you learn and to appreciate it and learn a little bit about the sport, it's a fascinating sport. It really is. So I know people who are, have been waiting for it to come back, especially uh, at Belmont. So, uh, plus we'll be racing some horses there. I'm looking forward to racing some of the babies there in the next couple of weeks. So, uh, we'll have some horses running in the next couple of weeks at Belmont. So, racing tomorrow, one fifteen at beautiful uh, Belmont Park. JJ comes your way uh, at seven. All right, let me get some calls in here to start the day off. Uh, let's see where we begin. We begin with. Uh, let's see. We will begin with uh, Chris and Beth Page. Go ahead, Chris. Hey, Michael. I want to talk about the Knicks both, but very quickly. I mean, it, when they write the history books on this year, 2020, I mean, we went from where people couldn't literally go to funerals. I mean, really, by loved ones. You couldn't stand next to someone at a funeral. Only five people allowed to go to the gravesite to where there are mobs in the street now protesting. I'm just saying, it's like, you can't write this stuff up. Like, we don't know what's acceptable anymore as a society. Well, we don't know what what this is going to mean. We don't know if this is going to mean an outbreak or if this is going to cause an outbreak. We're just going to wait and see what happens in the next couple of weeks. Who knows? God forbid we have another huge outbreak here because of this. I mean, we just don't know what's going to happen. It just adds another, as you said, it adds another uh, chapter to the story. Oh, all right, now, Mike, quickly about the Knicks bullets. Uh, I was a very young kid. That was the first series I ever remember was that classic uh, Knicks bullets in the 69-70. But I want to talk more about the following year, if you remember. I remember as a kid, that was the most heartbreaking Knicks loss ever, that Game 7 they lost yep. at the Garden to the yep. bullets. Yep. And then the bullets went on, and I think they got swept by the Bucks yep. in the finals. But Absolutely do you recall, because like I said, I was a young kid, do you recall the particulars of that Game 7 
because I remember it was close. If I remember right, it was 89-88, I think, was the final score, I think. I right. could be wrong, I, but I, do I remember the exact everything about the game? I do not off the top of my head. I, I do know that it was a very tough series. Uh, they always played great games. They always played close games. They always played classic games. Uh, they just always did. So, you know, uh, that was a heartbreaking loss. And they were very – listen, you could not have – I always said this. The team that they matched up against the best, where it was most equal, was the Bullets. Because you had a corresponding, and thanks for the call, you had a corresponding player for each player. For Reed, you had Unseld. For Debushi, you had Gus Johnson. For Marin, you had Bradley. You know, and whoever was playing the other guard, you had Barnett, and then you had Frazier and Monroe. So, I mean, it was, it was absolutely perfect. Uh, John in Connecticut, what's up, John? You today. Mike, what's how are you to today? Uh, so I'll be honest, I'm only 24 years old, so I, I really don't know who Wes Unseld is, but granted, everyone has so much free time, I YouTubed him. Um, I heard you earlier say he was the best outlet passer. Of all time, not even close. Not well, even close. One player, though, I do know during that time period, Bill Walton. What yeah, not as close. If you ask Bill argument? Walton, if you ask Bill Walton, he'll tell you he could not do it anywhere nearly as good as Wes Unseld. Okay, fair enough. I and mean, I, I love I and I love Bill Walton. And Bill Walton was a much better player than Wes Unseld. A much better player. But as far as the outlet pass, Bill, I've heard Bill say it. Bill has stated the best outlet pass thrower of all time was Wes Unseld. Without and Bill was maybe the next best. You're absolutely right. And Bill was a great player. Uh, Wes Unseld was not a great player. He was an all-star. He was not an immortal. Bill Walton, healthy, was an immortal. He's the second-best college player of all time. And he would have been an all-time great pro, except he only had a handful, and I mean a handful, of healthy NBA seasons. Maybe three, if you want to get real. Okay, one full one. And that year, he won the championship. That's the, and the next year, he was 50-5 and five when they were in the lineup. When he was in the lineup, they were 50-5, and five, and he broke his foot in the playoffs uh, against Seattle. Uh, so uh, Walton was a legendary player, but, and you picked a good guy. But the best, and if you ask Walton, if I got Bill on the show, and I said, Bill, who threw the best outlet pass of all time? He'd say, without question, Wes Unseld. Wes Unseld could flick it. To, to uh, you know, a third of the court, and before he hit the ground, it was gone. Walt was great at it too. I totally agree, but no one threw it better than Wes Unseld. Jake in uh, in Pennsylvania, what's up, Jake? Michael, how are you? Good. What's up? It's a pleasure to share the dial with you, even for just a moment. Uh, listen, I work in labor disputes, and I, I, I love your idea. I'm a big baseball fan. I love your idea. I don't think um, they'd agree uh, to it, though. I don't think they'd agree. So maybe, maybe not. They see the way the winds are blowing, and people want sports right now, obviously, as some sort of a distraction from what's going on, as, as you acknowledge. Uh, to your point, I, I, I follow you on, on Twitter. Great commentary, and I truly, truly enjoy it. But to, if you would let me spitball with you for a moment, there's one thing that they must keep in mind here, and that's confidentiality, okay? Um, what's going to happen is people are going to try and try, if they may, to uh, persuade the public's opinion one way or the other. We see it all the time, right? right. Um, uh, they, they must maintain that uh, confidentiality. And and, and going into this, um, whether it's 
one arbiter, two, I would suggest two, perhaps a, a labor side and perhaps a management side. Um, uh, perhaps you could, you could. Serve. No, no, no. I, I they need it. They need it. They need a real, they need a real, and thanks for the call. They need a real arbiter. They need a real labor management, a guy who can negotiate deals. They need a guy who does that for a living, a professional who does that, who can do contracts of this magnitude and make it binding arbitration. That's what, which means whatever he decides, that's it. Now, you could make it going in that he either takes side A or side B. He doesn't have the right to make a, a third option. Or you can give him the right to make a third option going in. Or you make it where he takes A or B. He takes the ones that the so that you have to you have to put one forth as the union side or the management side. You have to put one forth that is fair because if you make it outrageous, you know he's not accepting it. So you have to take both sides into consideration if you want yours to be chosen. So and then he either chooses the baseball presentation or the union presentation. Now. Again, I think the key is we don't touch the sport, which is a big part of this for the future. We go back next year just like we didn't play this year. Everything stays the same. Nothing changed. Service time didn't change. Contracts didn't change. Nothing changed. So that nobody gained an unfair advantage in the crisis year. That's why I brought that forth because it is a unique year and it is a unique amount of money and just figure out a way to make it for this one-time deal, make it a deal that both sides can live with and agree. I don't think these two, knowing the way they negotiate, I don't think they'd either give up the power. I don't think either one would ever allow uh, the an arbitrator to make that decision. Uh, Stephen Chappaqua, what's up, Steve? Hey, Mike, number one, the extra half hour is fantastic. I hope it goes forever and not just well, for the end of the show. They, uh, yeah, so far all I know is they asked me to do this. They were hoping I was going to do this till baseball came back. Now I don't know when baseball is coming back. So that's what was the, that was their plan. So I, I, they asked me to do it till July. That's all I know so far. But go ahead. All right. And then on the, uh, the baseball, uh, listen to this. A regular season is April, May, June, 81 games. July, August, September, 81 games. Correct. Right now, uh, management's at 50. The players are at 114. That's 64 games. Different. Meet in between, that's 32 games. You're at 82 for half a season. Perfect. Uh, Meet halfway. Definitely agreeable, but I don't think the players, I don't think the owners will pay them the prorated salaries for 82. I think the players would take that. Yeah. I think the player. I think. I think Steve. And thanks for the call. I think the players would take eighty-two. I think they offered one fourteen, but I think they would take eighty-two at their full pay, prorated salary of eighty-two. I don't think owners will pay them prorated. See, some of these teams, you have. Look at your te- your 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 pools here. You have your network television playoff money pool. Substantial. Your regular season network money pool, less substantial, but substantial. And then what you have in baseball is the individual money that teams make 
on radio, streaming, obviously gate receipts, but also local television, local cable, all that stuff. And that's where the, it, it is an incredible run-the-gamut disparity between the have-nots and the haves. The have-nots like Tampa Bay, Seattle, Minnesota, the haves, of course, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Cubs, the Dodgers, etc. So that's where you have, if it gets to being paid, full pay at 82, those teams that don't make that middle money are like, oh, no, oh, no, can't pay it, can't pay it, rather not play. And that's where the votes dry up. Casamigos Tequila, as always, sponsors the program, and we thank them for that. Brought to you by those who drink it. We will see you uh, tomorrow night. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion. 